Welcome to episode 171 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on October 9th, 2021. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. And if you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Now, we have so much to get to, so much news, whether it's mobile, enterprise, so much. Let's just jump right into your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. First in the show, let's talk about Android. We don't talk about Android that much on this show, but the latest version, Android 12, is now officially available from the open, the AOSP or the Android Open Source Project. So there's a lot of interesting features in Android 12. Uh, uh, it's not like the typical boring release that we have been seeing. So Android 12 has a new user interface with redesigned widgets and other graphical elements, more efficient system performance, more responsive notification, a faster machine learning performance, support for the AVIF image uh, codec, a variety of new developer APIs, and various privacy enhancements that have been wanted by a lot of people for a long time. Although talking about privacy enhancements when Google's involved is sort of laughable. So, but I will say that overall, the new Android 12 is the, is a, the first release in a long time that is actually interesting. For many releases, it's been the same old boring thing, but with 12, they have made big changes to the overall look and feel, and they made a lot of big performance changes, including with support for the enhancements of background processes not taking up so much uh, resources. One big improvement that is kind of sad it took this long is the new notification history log. I can't tell you how many times I've accidentally swiped away something that I didn't mean to just because some random thing popped up in the notifications. So when I swiped it, I swiped the wrong thing. And it just because it changes orders when that happens. And that's happened so many times that it's very annoying. But this is a much needed improvement. So now when you go to your notifications, if you accidentally swipe something away, you can actually check out the notification history and then see when stuff happened in what order and all that and it's very surprising it took over a decade for anyone to figure out that was necessary. There's actually third-party applications to kind of compensate for that. And now, finally, Android has that. It's, it took a while, but it's great that it's finally here. So now, if you want to learn more about Android 12, there's a lot of new stuff. There's some video demos and stuff like that I'll have linked in the show notes. So if you want to check out the latest information about what happens with a Android 12, you can find links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we've got an exciting update for Asahi Linux. I first talked about this effort in January of this year, and in that time, the project went from a hopeful goal to now seeing the fruits of that labor becoming a nice, ripe apple. Get it? Apple? Okay, for those who are unaware how awesome that dad joke was, Asahi Linux is the project being made to get Linux working on an Apple's M1 Mac line of computers. Plus, the goal of Asahi Linux project is to upstream everything into the Linux kernel. So that is a fantastic thing. And they've got a lot of stuff already in the kernel being reviewed. We have been following this progress since it started. And uh, today, I have something great to tell you about it. And that is that with the progress made over the past month, Asahi Linux is usable as a basic Linux desktop on M1 Mac hardware. 
albeit without GPU acceleration, which will be coming later. But this is fantastic. And now, also, there are many new Apple M1 driver submissions under review for mainline, such as uh, including the uh, pin control, uh, I2C driver, ASC, ASC mailbox, IO, MMU, 4K handling, and also device power management. All of these things are currently being uh, reviewed, and there's a lot more that are pending to get reviewed very soon, which is just awesome. So what about the other things about, you know, in the future proofing of it, what about Apple M2 chips that are bound to be coming at some point? Well, the Asahi Linux developers have mentioned that they are optimistic for the moment that much of their driver work will carry forward to the future of Apple Silicon iterations. And I quote, Apple is unique in putting emphasis in keeping hardware interfaces compatible across SOC generations. The UART hardware in the M1 dates back to the original iPhone. This means we are in a unique position to be able to try writing drivers that will not only work for the M1, but may work unchanged on future chips as well. This is a very exciting opportunity in the ARM64 world. We won't know until Apple releases the M1X or the M2, but if we succeed in making enough drivers forward compatible to boot Linux on newer chips, that will make things like booting older distros installers uh, possible on newer hardware. This is something that people take for granted on x86, but it's usually impossible in the embedded world, and we hope we can change that on these machines. Now, this is fantastic news, and I'm really excited about it because... It means that Linux is going to be supported on this hardware much quicker than people anticipated. And it would, you know, Linux, of course, needs to be everywhere. Uh, that's why we have a shirt in the DLN store about that, dlnstore.com. Linux is everywhere. Check it out. But this is great, and I'm, I'm so happy that the Apple Silicon is no different to that goal of getting Linux everywhere. Uh, and also, as for, regarding the current usability of it, they say that with these drivers, M1 Macs are actually usable as desktop Linux machines. While there is no GPU acceleration yet, the M1 CPUs are so powerful that software-rendered desktop is actually faster on them, in their opinion, uh, than the Rockchip ARM64 machines with hardware acceleration. I have heard some benchmarks that M1 Macs are pretty good hardware, so I'm really happy to see that they, they, the support for Linux on this is happening so quickly. And if you'd like to learn more about the efforts being made for supporting Linux on M1 Macs or more about uh, Asahi Linux in general, you can check out the links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have the latest release of Firefox, and there is a lot of great stuff in this latest release of Firefox 93. Let's talk about what's new and what's been fixed, as well as some a little bit of controversy that's happened related to Firefox. We'll get to that in a bit. But for now, uh, Firefox now supports the new AVIF image format, which is based on the modern and royalty-free AV1 video codec. It offers significant bandwidth savings for sites compared to existing image formats, and it also supports transparency and other advanced features, so that is fantastic to see. And another thing that's great to see is that Firefox PDF Viewer now supports filling more forms. So that's for XFA-based forms used by multiple governments and banks and that sort of stuff, which is a very nice, convenient thing for a lot of people. Uh, Firefox also now blocks downloads that rely on insecure connections, protecting against uh, potentially malicious and unsafe downloads. So for example, if you were going to download something and it tries to send you to an HTTP download file instead of an HTTPS, it would block that from happening, which is very nice. And they haven't really exactly explained like what constitutes a download, whether it's an image that's not under HTTPS or 
what exactly, but uh, it's really nice to see that they're working on that kind of thing. They've also improved web compatibility for privacy protections with Smart Block 3.0, and also in introducing new refer tracking protection in the strict tracking protection and private browsing modes of Firefox. Also, just a quick note that I'm happy about is that the compact mode is actually compact now. So when they switched to the new interface with the bubble tab look, they made a compact mode that was like barely compact, not really at all. And this latest version, I tested it with a new release of 93 and the actual compact mode is compact. So fantastic. Though there are some reports that they'll be removing the compact mode completely in Firefox 94. So I don't know about that and if why they put in the effort to make it compact if they're going to remove it. But if you go into the customization section and go to the density, it will say uh, compact mode not supported. So it's up in the air what happens with that. Hopefully it stays because I do like the that. Uh, I don't want to use too much of my screen real estate just for the UI of the browser. I want to put more emphasis on the website that I'm going to or the web app that I'm using. So hopefully the compact mode stays. Uh, they've also fixed some accessibility stuff related to screen readers like Orca and VoiceOver, which is great, as well as other various uh, security fixes. Now, there is a bit of controversy around this release related to some search suggestions that seem to be contextual ad-based. Now, this is certainly an interesting topic to cover, uh, and, so, but I, and I do want to dive into it, but we don't really have the time to do it on this show this week. So instead, we've decided to tackle this on the next Destination Linux, which is happening tomorrow. So be sure to join us at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time at DLNlive.com to see that discussion and what we think this can mean for Firefox and Mozilla as a whole. If you'd like to learn more about Firefox 93 specifically, then check out the links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the DigitalOcean. There's new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever by using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point your, the App Platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all of the heavy lifting. What do I mean by that? Well, whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, or container images, it handles all of the heavy lifting for you with any of those things by also running the App Platform on their own infrastructure DigitalOcean keeps your cost significantly lower than with other products. And they built it on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, by, which provides a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup as well. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started right now with this to create your world-changing app with their app platform for free. That's right, for free, actually better than free, because if you go to the app platforms, uh, DigitalOcean's giving you a $100 free credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, let's talk about some enterprise-related topics, and we have RHEL, or Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.5 Beta is out, and it has a lot of new improvements. It's got new features, and it's easier for RHEL users to access and test it out. And this release brings live kernel patching to the web console, as well as a number of system role improvements and ma uh, management enhancements. So real quick, let's talk about some of the system roles. 
So their new rail system roles include uh, update, a new system role for Microsoft SQL Server, allows IT administrators and DBAs to more quickly install, configure, and tune uh, SQL servers in an automated fashion. Uh, also, there's a new role for VPNs, reduces the time to configure VPN tunnels and reduce the risk of misconfiguration or use of non-recommended settings. There's also a role for PostFix, which enables administrators to skip manual configuration of PostFix, automating how you install, configure, and start your server, as well as specify custom settings to better control how the PostFix works in your environment. They've also got some stuff for time sync and some storage improvements, uh, and also Rails Web Console, based on the upstream uh, cockpit project is a web-based interface for managing and monitoring your systems. And it has a kernel live patching management via the web console, which is awesome because that gives you a lot of control inside of cockpit, which is just really cool. Cockpit is a really interesting project. And if you've never used it before, you should check it out if you do any kind of uh, virtual machine management and deployment and that sort of stuff. Uh, Enterprise Linux has also been very interesting space for the past year since the news about CentOS Linux being deprecated for CentOS Stream happened and so much more. And we got a little bit more to talk about that specifically coming up in the next topic. But if you want to learn more about Red Hat's uh, RHEL 8.5 beta, I'll have links in the show notes. So up next, we have the opinion that CERN has offered for CentOS Stream. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of changes happening with the enterprise space, and CERN is the people behind Scientific Linux, and they have been doing analysis on the enterprise space with RHEL or CentOS Stream and uh, the enterprise uh, Linux clones or ELCs such as Rocky Linux and Alma Linux. Uh, and they also have a, a discussion right now with Red Hat about an academic offer that has been made to CERN. We don't know exactly what that entails, but uh, it might happen. It might not. But there's a lot of interesting stuff related to CentOS Stream that they have said. And because they say that we propose to target CentOS Stream 8 as the standard distribution for experiments. We feel that deploying CentOS Stream 8 is low risk, and we now have months of experience running production workloads on CentOS Stream 8 without any significant issues. Now, this is very interesting because they go on to say that we should we feel that should issues arise with the adoption of CentOS Stream 8, it would be straightforward to reevaluate other options before CentOS Stream 8 support ends, which, by the way, is expected to be supported until May 2024. And they also say that trivial migration paths are provided by the various uh, clone communities, such as Alma Linux. Now, this is really interesting because there's a huge uh, controversy and drama that was created by the change from CentOS Linux and CentOS Stream back last year in December. And a lot of people were worried that the new CentOS Stream was going to make it impossible for anyone to use it because it was going to be moving too fast and all that sort of stuff. But this is... Based on CERN's testing, this is not the case. And also they gave some updates about how fast uh, security updates were received in CentOS Stream versus CentOS Linux. Also, just the stability. And there's it's not as drastic or as dire as people have made it out to be in the past. They say that they have months of successfully operating CentOS Stream 8 in production across diverse environments, uh, fully supported systems at CERN, both puppet-managed and unmanaged hosts, they say that the rate of change for system updates are not as scary as they initially thought. They say that the system update stability has been good. And they also uh, talk about the continued support for existing workloads that they have for Scientific Linux 7, as well as CERN CentOS 7. But going forward, they talked about in a roadmap, 
CERN and Fermilab will continue to evaluate the distribution landscape, especially once RHEL 9 and associated clones, or ELCs, are released for 9. But once CentOS Stream 9 is released, they say that they're going to work to support this distribution at CERN as well, likely around Q1 2022. Um, and I have messed around with CentOS Stream myself, and uh, it has been very solid for my uses. But of course, my use case is much, much smaller than what is typically used for these kind of distros, especially with like, you know, CERN, Experimental. I don't do any of that stuff. But I'm personally excited for the future of CentOS, not only because of what Stream offers that it was never possible before, because, you know, for those who don't know, it, it wasn't really even possible to contribute to uh, CentOS prior to the change to stream. So I'm really happy that they're doing that because there is a, you know, a lot of people think about, you know, CentOS being um, or CentOS Linux being a fork of RHEL. They didn't realize that because it was a fork of RHEL, you couldn't do anything in CentOS that affected RHEL. And now with stream, you can. And that is a huge game changer for a lot of things and a lot of uh, enterprise deployments as well. I'm also excited to play with Rail Official since it's possible now for free up to 16 instances, as well as, you know, check out some of the clones like Alma Linux. So I think this is a very interesting news from CERN. It might subdue some of the, you know, doomsday predictions and whatnot. Maybe not. I don't know. But I think overall, when you're, you consider that every factor, when you're talking about the clones that exist, where you're talking about a CentOS stream and how it updates Nowhere near as fast as people thought or chaotic as people thought it would and how RHEL is now available for more people in easier ways and even free in a lot of cases. I think that the enterprise space for Linux has become super interesting and just continues to develop in that. And if you'd like to learn more about this news from uh, CentOS or CERN, I'll have links to a PDF uh, slideshow that they released related to this news uh, in the show notes below. Speaking of Alma Linux, we've also got some news from them as they have announced that membership in the Alma Linux Foundation is now open to everyone and it's 100% free to become a member. What does this mean exactly? Well, this is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in Alma Linux when it comes to the various CentOS clones. There are many clones, but in regards to governance and structure, I think Alma Linux seems to be checking every box. So Alma Linux Foundation was created as a 501c6 nonprofit in order to put ownership of the OS and the IP and the direction of the project in general into the hands of the community. Now, there are clones that are controlled by companies, but to my knowledge, I think Alma Linux is the only one of this kind of implementation, so that's why I'm more interested in Alma Linux. And by joining as a member, people have the right and the ability to vote on board members and the direction of the project. Now, to quote Alma Linux, they say that, we all own Alma Linux now, and no one can change that forever. Not Cloud Linux, not any other corporation or anyone else. Our fate and future are in the hands of every member and is ours alone to control. We're no longer bound by one person, a group, or entity. It cannot be bought, nor sold, nor transferred, or fought about. Now, this is really interesting, and for my personal needs, I put Alma Linux in my top three choices, right up there with using RHEL directly, thanks to the 16 free license I mentioned in the last topic, and also CentOS Stream, because contrary to popular belief, it doesn't seem to be that bad. Now, it's not verbatim of what CERN said about it, but, you know, close enough. <laughs> so it, uh, it's really interesting that they're doing this, and if you are wanting to be involved in the way of becoming a member for, all, for Alma Linux, you can, learn, you can find more about what they're doing and how to become a member in the show notes below. 
This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, it provides you with a bunch of great tools such as the secured vault where you can store all of your passwords. You can also use the generator for um, automatically making your passwords. And you can also use Bitwarden to automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. You can also access your data on many different types of devices, whether it's a web browser, a mobile applications, desktop application, or even on the command line. You have all of these great uh, options to do it. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data on, with end-to-end encryption on your devices. So it, it's encrypted before it ever leaves your devices. So you know that you're the only person who has access to your data, which is super important for the kind of data that you'll be using Bitwarden for. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium accounts because it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. For less than a dollar per month, you get one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time password, private customer service, and so much more. Plus, Bitwarden is open source software and they do security audits to make sure, and they publish those security audits to show you the efforts they are taking to make sure Bitwarden is a safe place for your data. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to check it out. And also real quick, they have business accounts and family accounts, and it's so easy to set up a family account for someone to be able to uh, help them get started with a password manager if they've never used it before and might be a little bit for some people to get started. And this makes it possible for you to easily easily set it up for them and even uh, share passwords back and forth with an organizational vault, whether it's a business or a family, you know, so many great features in Bitwarden. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. And speaking of passwords, Bitwarden makes it really easy to generate a new Twitch password for those who have a Twitch account. If you're not familiar, Twitch has been dealing with some messy stuff recently with uh, bot hate raids, which of course are pathetic and awful, but it seems to have gotten worse for Twitch. Twitch has confirmed that there has been a data breach. Of course, they haven't been very forthcoming about what all happened within this breach, but based on the reports, it's not good. In fact, the reports say that 125 gigabytes of company data has been leaked. Now, there is no indication yet that it includes login details, it's probably a good idea to just change your Twitch password anyway, just in case. Also, they have announced that they were changing the keys for every single account. So if you are a Twitch user, you do have to go in and change the key to make sure your streams work again. Now, there, there is some information that we have based on the reports about this leak and as far as what it contains. So it says that Twitch's source code with repository commit history going back to its early beginnings is included in this leak, which is very, very interesting. Uh, mobile, desktop, and video game console Twitch clients are included in this. Various proprietary SDKs and internal AWS services used by Twitch. Uh, every other property that Twitch owns, including IGDB and CurseForge, is apparently included. Uh, the leak also shows that uh, Amazon Game Studios is working on a Steam competitor called Vapor. Now, that's pretty interesting, and I do want to cover that when it comes out because a Steam competitor uh, is uh, something that could be interesting to talk about. We, that's all we know is just a little bit, that, you know, that, that much is all we know. Uh, and also streamer payout reports showing some people's uh, like how much money they've gotten from uh, being a streamer on Twitch. Uh, also, Twitch's security tools are included. And this data dump 
was labeled as a part one by the person who posted it on 4chan. And if it is a multi-part release, well, it could get pretty ugly for Twitch. We'll have to wait and see what happens here. But, you know, if you want to change your password, it'd be really easy to do that with Bitwarden. So think about it. And if you'd like to learn more about this Twitch news, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next on the show, let's talk about the Fairphone 4, which is coming soon. Pre-orders will be available very soon, I think in the beginning of November. Now, we talked about the Fairphone 4 in detail on episode 45 of Hardware Addicts, which was released yesterday. So if you want to have a full in-depth look at the Fairphone 4, then check that out. I'll have links in the show notes for episode 45 of Hardware Addicts. But some of the highlights that I want to talk about is the the aims to be uh, eco-friendly, sustainable, and even modular in design, making it possible to replace many parts of the phone. That's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the Fairphone. It's also Fairtrade certified, which is fantastic, and I think the only phone that is Fairtrade certified. Now, the specs of this phone are not too shabby. So it's a 6.3-inch full HD Plus display, uh, 5G support, flexibility with two SIM cards. It also has support for e- an eSIM slot for additional number. Uh, it has a clean version of Android 11. They talk about clean version as in they remove all of the ugh that comes with Android. Uh, there's also expandable storage, which is rare in phones these days. It has two uh, two cameras, a 40, uh, 48 megapixel qual- uh, quality main lens. Also, it has a front camera. Uh, it has a light sensor and also ability to do 4K video recording, which is awesome. Now, the thing that's actually kind of depressing for me is that it's available only for Europe. I think it's only Europe, but it might be other parts of the world. But I do know it is not available for me to get uh, very easily. So um, just a quick request, Fairphone, please make it easier for me to get it. I appreciate that. Uh, but if you want to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes, but also check out the latest episode of Hardware Addicts. We dig in so much more into this phone. It is such an interesting story about the pine- the Fairphone. So check it out. I have links in the show notes for that as well. Up next in the show, we have some distro news, and we're going to be talking about Farron OS 2021.10. Now, we've covered Farron OS in the past, but it's been oh, too, way too long. So let's talk about what the latest release of 21, or 2021.10 has. There are new wallpapers from Unsplash. One of the things I wanted to talk about is the splash screen and the lock screen has been completely redesigned for this latest release. And the end goal is to polish the feel for the process of logging in and smoothly transitioning from the splash screen and the login screen to the desktop. Now, when it relates to the lock screen, they were also using some elements from KDE Plasma's lock screen combined with their own uh, effects and their own approaches. So they have a, you know, featuring a sliding media status, a new interactive screen overall, and just many features related to the lock screen. Now, this latest version of 2021.10 is based on Linux 5.11 kernel, and it uses KDE Plasma 5.22. So you'll have the nice uh, quick settings page that was released in Plasma 5.22, as well as all the other improvements that came with that. And if you'd like to learn more about what came out in Plasma 5.22, you can check out Twill 155 for more information about that. Now, another thing that I want to talk about is we could, we discussed some stuff that Firefox is doing in like recently and how we're going to talk about that on Destination Linux. So be sure to join us tomorrow for that live stream on dlnlive.com. 
But something's really cool in Farin OS is that Mozilla Firefox has a lot of modifications. For example, they have made it so that the compact mode and uh, no title bar by default are set, so it looks really nice. Also, none of the stories stuff in the new tabs uh, page are there. They also say that they removed some uh, other new tab distractions. They've also uh, disabled uh, Pocket by default, so anybody who didn't like the fact that Pocket was there in their Firefox. Uh, and also, some there was some telemetry stuff that some people do not like. Now, I'm not completely against telemetry. I think that there are... Uh, times where telemetry, telemetry is valuable, not only good, but actually helpful and that sort of stuff. But there is sometimes it can be taken too far. And in many cases we've covered in the past where some applications did take it too far. Now, I don't think that Firefox is one of those applications, but some people do not agree with the way that they're doing it. And in the if you if you wanted to use uh, Farin OS, you can just know that telemetry has been turned off on most of the things, and even some settings that you, even some things you can change that are not available in the settings, but are available for like the about config and that kind of thing. There's also many more tweaks for the Firefox layout in Farin OS. And if you're interested in checking out Farin OS, I think that Farin makes a lot of cool uh, experimental stuff with Plasma and makes, you know, it's a very, really cool experience. If you wanted to see a, you know, a, a bespoke, interesting approach to Plasma, then check out Farin OS 2021.10. Link in the show notes. Up next in the show, let's do a little bit of housekeeping, and I want to tell you about the latest episode of Destination Linux, episode 246. We talked about the Linux challenge that Linus Tech Tips is doing, and it's a very interesting conversation, but I also saw an update on their latest edition of the WAN show, where Linus, Linus mentioned that he wanted to have an experience that was more like what an average user would have access to. So he didn't want to take advantage of special treatment that he could have had, because of course he could have had it, a lot of people have offered it, whether they're, you know, Average users, or whether they're, you know, me, I did as well on Twitter, and even distro developers have offered assistance. And he said he didn't want to take advantage of that because it's kind of a, a special treatment that most people wouldn't have the access to do. And I agree to with him with that about that point specifically. However, it doesn't seem to be he doesn't seem to be using any resources that are available to average users, just such as, for example, the dlnforum.com. Anyone can join the DLN forum and get help with you know, getting started in Linux or really anything else related to Linux and open source. And one of the best things about the Linux community is the willingness to help. And with the dlnforum.com, that willingness is available to everyone and anyone. So this is something that he could use. And just, uh, you know, whether you're Linus from Linus Tech Tips or not, you can check out dealinforum.com as well to get help with Linux or in just any questions you may have related to Linux and open source. So check it out, dealinforum.com. Also, be sure to join us tomorrow for Destination Linux because we're going to be talking about the Firefox topic that I mentioned earlier in the show. So be there at dealinlive.com at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Up next in the show, we have some gaming news, and that is the latest version of PPSSPP is available with 1.12. Now, this is a PSP emulator, and after eight months of work, it now has support for Android 12 and the new Android storage model called Scoped Storage. Now, Android 11 Plus made some changes to how storage permissions worked which resulted in the PPSSPP having to introduce the support for the new storage model. And if you'd like more details on this, you'll find links in the show notes for that. And in addition to this, fully supporting Android 12, uh, PPSSPP is a that's a lot a lot of stuff to say. Uh, 1.12 includes a lot of bug fixes and new features. 
from new UI background options to a lot of game fixes. And for those of you adventurous enough to try the experimental multiplayer support, it works better than ever before. Now, this the list is way too long to mention here, so I'll have a link in the show notes for more details, but for some of the highlights, lots of updated UI, like a new a joystick collaboration system and many new, new touch control options, as well as new backgrounds. Also built-in CRC calculator to be able to check with others that your ISO is valid. Uh, many graphical glitches have been fixed and new texture filtering options for auto max quality for smooth texturing has been added. There's also new audio options to choose, like whether to switch between you know newly, newly plugged in devices, also reverb volume and a lot more. If you wanna check out the latest version of PPSSPP 1.12, I'll have links in the show notes below. At last week's Linux Foundation Open Source Summit slash Embedded Linux Conference, there was a presentation by Sony about their history with open source and Linux and how they've been accelerating their efforts into contributions for open source. Sony talked about how they have utilized open source and Linux over the past 20 years in their consumer electronics and how their relationship with open source has evolved over that time. It also covered their work on establishing an open source program office at the company and much more. Now, starting off using Linux on digital video recorders in the early 2000s, they now talked about, about relying on Linux and open source for a wide range of products from robotics and uh, medical products to consumer electronics and so much. Now, in recent years, Sony has established more internal training around open source clearing up the policies for their engineers to contribute to upstream open source. And now with their 2020 or 20 plus phase, uh, they plan to accelerate contributions to Linux, which is fantastic. Unfortunately, there isn't a recording of the talk, but a PDF of the slides can be downloaded. I'll have that in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. And I found something very interesting on slide 19 of the slide deck. Sony mentions that they are expanding into game and film. They didn't offer much detail as to what that means exactly, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping we may see a Linux-powered PlayStation at some point, because that would be awesome. Now, we've talked about this on Destination Linux in the past uh, for related to how Sony and the PlayStation could be integrated with Linux, because Sony has such a great opportunity to integrate their gaming platform with Linux to battle Microsoft's Xbox slash Windows approach. And I'm, I'm only speculating, of course, but I think it would be a very smart play in a lot of ways if Sony were to do that, even if it wasn't based on Linux necessarily, but had support between the PlayStation and Linux as a, as a, a PC operating system. Really, really hope that that's what they're talking about. Uh, hopefully, in, and we'll get some more information about that in the future, but we'll have to wait and see where that goes. But if you'd like to learn more, I'll have links for the details about this uh, new growing uh, open source culture inside of Sony. I have links of that in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have a couple topics to talk about related to Google. And first up, Google recently announced a $10 billion commitment to cybersecurity defense, including $100 million to support third-party foundations that manage open source security priorities and help fix vulnerabilities. Google has committed $1 million in funding to the Secure Open Source a pilot program, or SOS, which financially rewards developers for enhancing the security of critical open source projects that we all depend on. This pilot program is run by the Linux Foundation with initial sponsorship from, the, from Google, or more specifically the Google Open Source Security Team, or GOST, and they state that we are starting one, with $1 million investment and plan to expand the scope of the program based on community feedback. 
So for eligible open source developers, you can earn anywhere from $505 for small improvements up to $10,000 for complicated, high-impact, and lasting improvements. Now, not everything is going to be available for not all open source projects. Linux Foundation says that its uh, criteria for critical projects is informed by the executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity issue uh, issued in May and corresponding guidance from NIST or the National Institute of Standards and Technology. There are also some other considerations being taken as to what is eligible for the program. If you'd like to learn more about that, I'll have links in the show notes. But it's great to see Google taking some initiative to help improve security in a broader sense like this. Again, if you'd like to learn more, I'll have links in the show notes. From one Google topic to another, well, this one's not good. You know something? Google is kind of a fickle beast. Sometimes they do good things like funding security programs like Sauce, which we just talked about, and then they follow that up with super sketch stuff that just makes you facepalm. So a few weeks ago, Google released Chrome 94 for desktop and Android, and a new feature was added that somehow didn't make a lot of waves. This feature is an API called Idle Detection. Google describes it as this. The Idle Detection API notifies developers when a user is idle, indicating such things as lack of interaction with a keyboard, mouse, screen, activation of screensaver, locking of the screen, or moving to a different screen. A developer-defined threshold triggers the notification. The API goes outside of operations of the browser itself to look at the user's keyboard, mouse, and stuff like that. This makes that information available to any website leveraging this API. Now, this is obviously not great, but Google says that somehow this is necessary because, and I quote, applications which facilitate collaboration require more global signals about whether the user is idle than are provided by existing mechanisms that only consider a user's interaction with the application's own tab. Because that's how it should be. I don't need a web app to have control, have access to things that I'm not touching the web app for. It doesn't need to know if I'm using my keyboard if I'm not using the web app. Very, very sketch. And very awful. So, uh, the... Tantex Selic, I'm not sure how to say that, sorry about that, Web Standards Lead at Firefox Browser, uh, developer for Mozilla, uh, has commented on this particular situation and says that as it is currently specified, I consider the idle detection API too tempting of an opportunity for surveillance capitalism motivated websites to invade an aspect of the user's physical privacy. You can also keep long-term records of physical user user behaviors, discerning daily rhythms, and using that for proactive psychological manipulation, in fact. In addition, such course patterns could be used by websites to max out local compute resources for proof-of-work computations such as crypto mining, wasting electricity, and also other things without users' consent. So this is not uh, a thing that most people are going to be happy about. Uh, also, other Chromium-based browsers are not happy about this. Specifically, John Von Techner, the founder and CEO of Evaldi, commented on this. By the way, we had a fascinating interview with John Von Techner on Destination Linux episode 243 that you should definitely check out if you learn more about Vivaldi. But in regards to the idle detection API, he says that this principle of actually monitoring that you're not in front of the computer, we see that as a privacy problem and we see it as a security problem. We, we do see that there is maybe the potential for someone to recognize, oh, you're not on your computer. Maybe we can do some damage while you're not there, like mining cryptocurrency or stuff like that. 
And also, uh, Brave has announced that they will have this turned off by default as well. So this just, it's very weird because Google is just, is such a confusing and disappointing company because on one hand, they do things that are great, like funding open source security and make cool services that have helped people, many people over the years. And then on the other hand, they do awful stuff like this. So... Firefox is one of the last refuges for, for the open and private web, and even they are kind of doing some silly stuff lately. Like I mentioned earlier, nowhere near as bad as Google. Let's be ser- clear about that. It, it's nowhere near as bad, but a, you know, somewhat questionable, I guess. And if you're interested in learning more about what I mean about that for Firefox, then, of course, tune in tomorrow for Destination Linux as we'll be talking about that very subject. And if you'd like to learn more about the idle detection issue with Chrome, link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. And if you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss things between the topics and also hang out every week before and after the show. I typically say just after the show, but we're now doing a pre-show uh, patron-only hangout that is available if you become a patron. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt that I'm currently wearing at thedealinstore.com. Plus, while you're there, you can check out all the other great stuff at the DLN store, like the hats, the mugs, the hoodies, the stickers, the aprons, and so much cool stuff at dlnstore.com. And also, if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And also, while you're there, check out all the other great stuff at DLN, like the Pseudo Show, DLN Extend, Gamesphere, and so much more. All of that at DestinationLinux.network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Snell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.